Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and you are listening to With Friends Like These. It's a special bonus episode of the show. If you're a subscriber, which I kind of assume you are because you're listening to a bonus episode, you know the usual MO around here. It's uncomfortable and awkward conversations, uh, conversations about the differences between us. This is a bonus episode because it is none of those things. It is not awkward, it is not uncomfortable, and it's not really about difference. It was basically an excuse to talk to my good friend, Jason Lincolns, who's an editor at HuffPost. He is an old friend of mine, as I said, and he writes about media. And we just kind of had a great time throwing the inside baseball back and forth, talking a little bit about the age of Trump and what it means for media and how we both have navigated uh, the DC um, Shark Tank. I hope it's a little bit of a palate cleanser after last week's episode, which I will talk more about probably uh, in the upcoming uh, regular episode. Um, Got a lot of wonderful feedback to last week's uh, crossover pod with John Moe, and I want to thank you guys for that. And I will just remind you here, since again, if you're listening to this, you are probably a regular subscriber. If you like the show, please rate and review us. It helps other people find the show and it helps us know that we're doing okay. And uh, again, if you're a fan of the show, you might know I'm a little insecure about that. Anyway, here's Jason. Uh, So I'm here with Jason Lincolns, my good friend, Jason. Um, still editor of Eat the Press. Something like that, yeah. Like editor Huffington of Eat the Press. Post. No, not Huffington Post. Anymore. Oh, right, right, right. Sorry, it's now... Huff Post. Huff Post. Yes, the Ing 10 will be on vacation now with other disconnected <laughs> sentence fragments. The Ing 10 was downsized. <laughs> was, yeah, we, we put it in the <laughs> juicero <laughs> machine and we squeezed it with the force of two Teslas. It was it was, it was a restructured <laughs> out of existence. Yes. Um, and I... I so we're both in D.C. We're in the most luxurious podcast studio I've ever been it is. in. Shout out to Studio Center. Like, if you ever need a podcast in D.C., babe, like, we are – I think we both look like we could be separately commanding the Starship Enterprise. This is a good place to just do your bar mitzvah. It's so amazing here. <laughs> it is so good. With us as entertainment. Exactly. I think. Yeah. Um, but so we're both in D.C. When I started the podcast, um, I very intentionally – it's sort of um, intended to face outward – from the Beltway, especially since I don't live here anymore. Sure. And I've kind of tried to do as much as possible to keep it pretty uh, – keep it outside of the normal 
the usual suspects. I think I've done a pretty good job, but I decided to sort of break my rule and like celebrate just the fact that I was here literally inside the Beltway. Also, it is <laughs> White House Correspondent Dinner Weekend. Yes. Um, that I am not going to, but I feel tainted by it nonetheless. Mm, yeah. Because uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to the Sam B event, which I think everyone is referring to as the Sam B event because calling it not the White House Correspondents Dinner seems a little wordy. It's wordy. Yeah. Um, but being here and kind of you know being reminded of like my old haunts and and seeing some people that I've known, I was reminded like I never really felt like an insider here, like. And and I think you were the same way because both of us you you wrote at Wonkat I started Wonkat, and the way we both blogged before that was as as people who lived here sure yeah but were not of here yeah I mean so I mean I was born in D.C. and yeah. my parents are right from Washington D.C. Um, but yeah I've never really I've, I've never felt connected to the Capitol Hill. Like the, the House city. of Cards version yeah, of yeah. DC, which it, really doesn't exist for anyone, but it's completely it's it's a little bit alien to me. And I also like to think that even though I've been exposed to it in in the depths of it for such a long time, I've done a decent job not succumbing to it. You know. Yeah, and let's talk about that because I think you know, like I said, uh, I start so when I started Wonkat, I was living in Arlington. Um, I had just been uh, laid off, I think, from AOL. Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, and I, I had kind of been fired from a few jobs in DC. I was resigned. I was applying to I was applying to schools of social work. Like yeah. I literally that is what I thought I might be doing. And um, I was blogging about politics, but it was really from the perspective of like someone watching a lot of C-SPAN. I was a nerd about politics, yeah. but I didn't know anyone. Like I just I, I I realized at some point I could recognize White House correspondents by their profile, which is an unusual skill to have. Yeah, that's um, pretty good. But, you know, I, I, I did cover it more like a um, bird watcher yeah. than a— I was the kind of person who could tell you who the junior senator from Minnesota was at a party. Yeah. And that was about it. Yeah. Uh, read newspapers. You know, I guess I've always been interested in politics. Um but, you know, I, I never really intended to start writing about politics. It just happened. Right. And I think for what that meant for both of us, and stop me if I'm wrong, but we've never worried about our, our next job. Now, and that's not because we're so confident we're going to get one. Sure. But, you know, actually, that was really good advice you gave me yeah. when, when, I, um, when I started at Wonkette, was, was never write as if you're writing to get your next job. Right. Um, and and was, I thought that was really, really good advice. Really good advice. Um, well, I mean, depends on <laughs> What you're trying to do with yeah. your life, but you know, if you're right, trying to maintain personal integrity, it is great advice. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is, is if you're trying to get more jobs, it's maybe not. An- so. Another phenomenon that I feel kind of really separates me from other people working in this business and working in the city is that <clears throat> when I came to having a full time job writing about politics, I had already done a bunch of other things, and probably most importantly, like. I kind of felt like at the time, like if you would, if if the last day of my life had been the day before I got I started writing about politics, I could have said I made I made a good quota of friends. I have a lot of friends, um, and I think a lot of people when they come into this business, I don't think this is a character flaw on that their part, but they probably don't know anything else, and all of their friends are from this industry, um, and so there's a sort of like scenestery type of. Uh, um, aspect to 
life in the Beltway media. And that is why it feels like high school. Right, yeah. Because people's work lives and personal lives just completely overlap. Yeah, it's no. Like there's, it's not a Venn diagram. It is a circle. Um, D.C. is a flat circle. Um, <laughs> and people treat everyone the same. Yeah. I, that's I, not good for you. No, it is. It's it's <laughs> terrible for you. No, I no, no, I love the people I work with. I love mm-hmm. my colleagues and I love hanging out with them. And when I when I have the opportunity to do so, I do it. But that doesn't mean that if there's like a big media party happening in DC, I think oh, I'll go to that. Mm-hmm. I don't go to those things because I'm just like why? I, I I could hang out with some other people and talk to them instead. Um, so for me, you know, if I, if I'm hanging out with like mostly media people, it's probably one of the situations where it's like, you know, 60% my colleagues and not like 10% my colleagues. <laughs> um, because you know, it, it's, 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 I'm not saying that people are, are bad. I really like getting to know people, but like, I don't feel this urge. This is where, that's where we, we differ, but <laughs> I, I don't, I don't feel the urge to make the scene ever, ever, ever. I will go home and like. I, my, my best friend from college lives in Arlington, and and his husband uh, lives down the. He and his husband live down the street from me, and so me and my wife, those two, we go out. And, and your wife is a civilian, which is important. My too, wife is a civilian, though I will I will say one of the more I think funnier moments in our life together. Yes. in our lives together is um, um, your wedding, which uh, which took place in Vermont. And uh, Tracy Seffel was there. Yes. And I'm almost 100% sure that she was behind this. Maybe it was you. But um, me and my wife ended up in Politico Playbook as guests yes, at your no, wedding. Yeah. As guests at your wedding. <laughs> and, like, I thought, it was, I thought it was hilarious on one level because, because like, of course. Yeah, that was us. That was Tracy and me. Yeah. Okay. So, cor- yeah. so, of course, Mike Allen jumped on putting your wedding in Playbook. Yeah. But the other thing is he didn't question at all why he should put my wife's name in bold in the Politico tip sheet. My wife is a special education teacher in Fairfax County. Who deserves her name in bold. She does. I I, <laughs> I I would like to see her have a growing and gathering influence in that world. But there was just no context for her to ever be in Playbook. But like Anna and Tracy told Mike she should be there and lo, there it was. We also put, was, a, friend of, we also put a friend of John's who was just completely <laughs> random. Just like... <laughs> Flabbergasted. Just like like this guy who like works. I can't. I mean, my husband's going to kill me, but I can't remember what he does for a living. But like he was in my he was a groomsman for my husband. (laughs) We just like put him in. That's kind of how the city works. (laughs) Is that like if someone with currency tells another person it's true or to do something, it's like I got it. Yeah, it's going out in a tip sheet tomorrow. Yeah, and it's crazy. I mean, I I mean, the reason I mean, I think that's why this conversation works for with friends like these. Yeah, because it's the sort of the these aren't really friends part of DC. In fact. So, you know, I do this column for the Times Magazine, and um, I've been I've been a journalist for a long time, which uh, listeners to this podcast know I sometimes I'm, – I'm, I'm at that age where I kind of sigh every time I talk about my career. Yeah. <laughs> it's just 20 years long now. Um, but uh, – And you're on your like 17th byline. And on my 17th byline. I definitely don't think about my next job when I'm writing because <laughs> – there's um, literally no point. There's no point because yeah. um, I've already – I've just – I've pissed off a lot of people. Um, but uh, when they, they tell me there's like uh, political insidery type people they want to interview, DC people in D.C., um, my editor is like, so are you friends with this person? <laughs> and I always – and I make the distinction for them between, well, I'm, I'm like D.C. friends. 
So I mean, I think it's safe for right. me to interview them because right. it's not like I'm not like real friends with them. In Omaha, you'd probably you might even be frenemies, <laughs> right? In, right. An, in another in another town, right. like we might just openly hate each other. Sure, sure, that um, would be like Carson City. You would hate each other, right? Yeah, exactly. But we're D- yeah. we're DC friends. Like we say yeah. hi to each other in green rooms, and you know, I know some things about them, right? Yeah, but. Basically, and so those are the people. It's uh, the Times. The Times does have a policy that you're not supposed to like. I'm not supposed to interview like friend friends. Yeah. So there's been a few times where the, where my editor's been like, so friend friend or DC friend. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I've, been, I've been thinking about what the difference is. And the difference is like, do I? I think it is my. It might be have I trusted this person with a piece of personal information, and has this person trusted me? Right. Have we exchanged confidences beyond? The relationship of a source and a reporter, yeah. and has that been a, 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 a an exchange of it that has integrity? Have I written something shitty about this person? Yeah, <laughs> and they don't care. They're never friends. No, I mean, no. It's 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 has is that a relationship? I mean, it's kind of do I respect this person? Maybe it's as simple as respect. No, because yeah. I've, I've interviewed people that I that are DC friends that I that I still respect. Can I tell you that I would actually I've written a lot of shitty things about people. Yeah. You have, which is, yeah, one of the reasons I love I you. would say 98% deserved. I make my own mistakes, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would, like, respect these people more if they would actually get mad at me. I'd love someone to take a swing at me. I'd be like, you're all right. You're all right with me. Because I've encountered people I've written shitty things about in the wild. And almost to a person, they just kiss my ass. It's grotesque. They're like, oh, you really got It's like, it's really, it's it's just like, come on, man. I mean, I, I read you for shit. I read you for shit. Like, Stand up for yourself. Yeah. Stand up for yourself. It's kind of pathetic. Yeah. That's why. That's why it's really weird when 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 in the city or in this industry when like someone comes comes as the hard man uh, online. I'm just like I don't believe you. I don't believe you'll ever. Uh, I don't believe you'll ever physically impose yourself on me. <laughs> it would be. It would be the craziest thing. You'd definitely catch me by surprise. Mm-hmm. Okay. I well, would people, definitely yeah. be sent to the hospital. <laughs> But, like, most of the people in the city are of the soft palm variety. I'm not saying I'm different. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know what would happen if I ended up in a street fight with, you know, Mike Allen. I hope, that never, <laughs> hope it never comes to that. Hope it never comes to that. It'd be, you know, would it be weird? It would just be weird for any observer outside of the circle to watch that happen. You know, it would be, it would be, what are these two idiots doing? It would probably look like two concussed seal lions. <laughs> Like Fla- attempting out of attempting water. to make love on the street, <laughs> you know. No, I have to say, you know, talk about viewing things through lenses. I will say that from my wife's perspective, and she's run in a lot of different social circles. I've dragged her into over the course of my life, and that she's been a part right. of too. She actually likes hanging out with reporters. Well, I mean, reporters are interesting people, and I mean, they listen the, it, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And reporters can be. I mean, I would if I had to choose a. Um, industry, yeah. <laughs> like, who do I want to, you know, talk to? Like, of course, like pe- reporters are interesting. They know interesting things. Like, that's that's their job. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, um, but it's funny. Like, I I want to kind of get to this a point which I think people outside DC may not understand, which is that you and I are describing a phenomenon which is very true, which is that when you are kind of a a media critic in DC, especially a professional media critic, um, people <laughs> will just eat your shit because. <laughs> 
I think it's because they deep down realize that they're that they that they are in fact centers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Then <laughs> that they just are they're they're waiting to be called out. The the, the death. In fairness, they also probably know that media criticism has a very very small audience. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. Um, but also <laughs> like people, who, the depths of insecurity of people who live here. I mean, who work here in this industry are astounding. Like just. I I always I, I the sensitivity to criticism. It's funny because people are both incredibly sensitive to criticism and unwilling to make true enemies. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I I feel like I feel like when you start putting yourself out there, you the first thing you do is you confront the fact. Oh my God, people don't like this, and like the insecurity flares up. Mm-hmm. Um, what I realized, personally speaking, is that like. That's that's all that is is justice. You know, you had a right to say something. If everyone else has the right to to come back at you, right? You know, it wouldn't be fair if just one person got to dole out all the criticism. And you know what? And we should be clear here because I think one of the fair. reasons that I have respect for you and the media criticism you do um, is, and hopefully, I I hope that I practice this myself. But when we talk about talking about shit about people. Um, I try. I try real hard to not attack people's um, personal characteristics or personal motivations unless I feel like I can be pretty sure about what they are. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, like sure. so when we talk about when we talk about taking people down and out or why people should hate us. I mean, ideally they they don't because we're attacking their work or they're criticizing their yeah, work. I'm and sure not I've slipped up here and person. there. Yeah, I mean, I know um, I have to. Uh, but but yeah, I don't I don't go in on you know attacks on appearances. You know, again, I probably slipped up here and there. Um, but you know, and I try to be really careful about motivations. I yeah. really do. Although again, like I said, if we're talking about insecurity, that's a huge blanket statement. Um, but it it it's it's hard to do that here. It's hard to like separate work um, people's work from their who they are. What do you are. do when a motivation though clearly shows up in the work? That's what I'm saying. Like yeah. I think if I'm unless I'm pretty sure what the motivation is. Um, and it's also true here that it's people are so invested in what they do. Like a lot of people don't see a difference between who they are. I mean everyone's a brand, right? I mean like you are your brand. Oh god, I hate that. <laughs> My brand is garbage, really. But I I'm I'm thinking about you know, something I, I, I think people who live outside the Beltway or who don't work in this industry might be wondering about, which is that when we talk about being amazed at colleagues' uh, uh, unwillingness to make true enemies, um, and we talk about that, like how that might be good if people would actually, you know, get mad or mm-hmm. or or say things they mean uh, about each other. Because I think people outside the Beltway look at this at this comedy between us and think, well, there's two ways to think about it, right? Like one is that um, – see, I don't know. Like I mean I think that there's this – you know, we all should be more empathetic to each other is something I hear from a lot of listeners. You mean everyone in the industry should be empathetic to each other? Because I'm trying to think about the way – I, I feel like I don't want to endorse being mean to people and making enemies. Okay, sure. Right? Like that's not what I'm talking about. I just wish people had the courage of their convictions here. And that's not the same as false partisan drama. Yeah, correct. I don't think. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. The way I do it is I try to – there are people who really test me on this. Mm-hmm. But – I try to come at it from an approach where everyone gets a clean slate at the new day. You know, someone who may have done something shitty one day 
maybe deserves to be singled out for praise the next. And you can't just, you, you can't let yesterday color something that's just like, wow, that was good, that person did. Um, so, you know, that's that's another part of like washing the city off you at the end of the at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You're just like, okay, everyone, we're gonna try to let everyone start from square one tomorrow. It doesn't mean we forget past sins. It just means that I come at it with the idea that, you know, uh, redemption is possible, let's say. Right. Redemption is, poli- is possible, but also <clears throat> you know. um, unlike in finance, like past results are indicative of future, future. performance. Right. And that yes. brings us to the question I, I've been wanting to ask you, which is based on your observation. I know how I feel about this. Um, is the media going to flip? What do you mean by flip? Like the like, oppositionality that seems to be so like purposeful right now. Um, you mean you mean in the Trump era? Yeah, in the Trump era. Oh, the way the way that everyone seems so confrontational. Yeah, um, and proud of it. That's like the part that is I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like super proud of how confrontational they are. Like, it's interesting. You know, one of the one I, of the, I just want to, I did the interview with Jake Tapper, who is great and actually is a friend friend it was an interview for yeah. south by southwest so it wasn't for the new york times um and the audience was just enraptured of him like just like they with and he was a hero you know which is great it's a little weird but you know just for me just having known him a long time i'm sure he finds it a little weird too yeah i'm sure he does too because i do think he's just doing his job sure yeah yeah um but and maybe he's not a good so maybe he's not a good example. But there is this like very proud oppositionality happening. But I know that's not how people here are. Yeah, you know. <clears throat> but we're in a different era. We're in a you know we're through the looking glass. One of the things that's I think interesting about what we've learned about the media in the Trump era is that too many people in the media don't actually see their job as a kind of civic institution. They see it as a media business. This is something that Brian Boitler and I talked about. We're really good. He wrote a really good piece about this. That like it finally, you know, it was one of those. It was one of those pieces you read, and it and and like it organizes, you know, eighty four words in your head down into seventeen, and you're like, God, thank God this got written. Um, and I I feel like that's right, you know. And one of the things one of the things that I felt so alienated from the rest of the media world when I started intersecting with it outside of you know, where I work, because I think we always have kind of had an eye on like the whole like we should do good um, is is that I just sort of automatically assumed naively that everyone's default position was that we're we're the fourth estate. We're a civic institution. We're an institutional guard against uh, corruption, against the disintegration of institutions, against norms. And it's like, no, no, we're just trying to make money. Um and I think making money is important. Obviously, no one, you know, we can't divorce ourselves from making money. But um, but the the attitude, especially during presidential campaigns, um, it goes completely adrift from the idea that the the the, the press has an important American role to right. play, an important role that is that that uh, that means something to the nation, that's meaningful to people, that is a sort of like vanguard helping the citizens be safe, secure, uh, accrue economic and political freedom and power, that kind of thing. Um, And 
what can I say? I, I think that I think that it, it's interesting during the campaign. A lot of that sense of it was lost. And I, th- I think it's more pernicious than um, being in it for the money. And that we, I did quotes around that. Listeners. Yeah. Uh, because that there are air quotes air quotes around yeah. that um, because that I think it was talking about presuming bad motivations because I, I know enough people in journalism they're not getting up in the morning thinking like oh yeah I'm going to make the sweet tall dollars doing this stand up in Nashua <laughs> right. you know yeah, sure sure sure, sure. <laughs> um, it's it's more about what it just the the, the mechanics of it are business like which is to say um, news is a commodity it you know getting it out the door first matters um, the, high, the the values have to do with firstness and freshness mm-hmm. and not with um, the more deep concerns yeah. about justice, truth, um, yeah. you know, Interesting. being that ball work. And so if you live in if, – so if you're really thinking – if you're thinking about what you do as a commodity business, about producing widgets of news yeah. that anyone can take or not take. And you're you, chalking it up. You're chalking it up. I think you produce a, one, a certain kind of product. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that's right. And that is how I still, you know, some people might say, oh, well, Trump has has forced the media to recognize their role as a civic institution. And I'm like, no, because they're still treating news like widgets. It's just now oppositionally flavored widgets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like right now we're going through this era where democracy dies in darkness. (sighs) People are fact checking. People are putting he told falsehoods in their headlines. You ask me when it's going to flip, it'll flip flip next time there's a campaign going on. That's when it'll flip. Because I do think that in the ca- that's in, when everything will get small and stupid again. Because I do think that in the, the primary and in the general, the coverage of Trump was again it was oppositionally flavored, same thing. Like yeah. it was just it looked maybe it looked and tasted like opposition, but it was really Coke. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> like it, it was it was diet journalism. It's like, interesting. It, it's his same same great taste, same full flavor. You know, none of the substance. Like it, it you know. Well, I mean. Think about the milieu he came from. He came from reality television. All of reality, all of reality television, from the perspective of what they're trying to sell to viewers, is oppositionally flavored. You, as a viewer, are supposed to not relate to those people. You're supposed to think of their foibles as ridiculous. You're supposed to think of them as as arrogant, brash, stupid. There might be moments of heart, but there you're still supposed to think, look at these weirdos we've got under this characters. microscope. Look at these yeah, characters. Yeah. We've yeah. got them under a microscope and we're making them do things. Ha 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 ha. And you know, I think that it was pretty easy to sell Trump that way. Mm-hmm. And he did get sold that way. And I and I worry. I mean, even as easy as it is to like the shit he does and says that just, you know, like boggle the mind. Yeah. Right? Like we I could pick from ten different examples in the last twenty four hours. Sure. Of things that he said or done that that make me just like face to palm. You know, of course. Um, I almost don't want to say them though, because what I I worry is that that stuff is oppositionally flavored to make jokes about that, but it doesn't get at like what the real problems are with this administration. Yeah, which is like the Justice Department is going to get people killed. You know, like I'm reading this book about the Attica uprising mm-hmm. and uh, the context for it, which um, highly recommended Heather Ann Thompson. Uh, I think she just got a Pulitzer for it. And um, she writes in, in the book something I didn't know, which is that the tough on crime rhetoric, um, you know, that Nixon used and that actually uh, Rockefeller used as well, even though we tend to think of Rockefeller Republicans as being like the good guys. Right. 
was kind of invented out of whole cloth. Like they weren't facing a crime wave. Like yeah. we have this idea in American history that like, oh, well, the tough, well, war on crime came from a crime wave. It didn't. It came from uh, it came from protest. But that's not a crime wave. Right. Actual crime in the U.S. did not increase. And I look at what's happening at the Justice Department and we have the exact same rhetoric happening. And that rhetoric matters because it doesn't because because it becomes rhetoric becomes policy pretty fucking quickly. Yeah. And also it communicates to police departments a certain attitude towards their jobs. Yeah. It does. Um, I think that. But haha, he needed a map to understand NAFTA. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) think about think about this. Think about this. Um, So the big story this week, as far as Trump goes, and really, there's been an escalating series of sort of like interviews or features with him because it's his first 100 days, and so everyone's and he will won't not be on the record. He yeah, yeah, must, exactly. He apparently, like he can't be off the record. <laughs> he really. Yeah. Needs so his... the so the sort of the sort of apex of this hundred day series of Trump profiles was the one that was published by Reuters uh, Thursday night, Friday morning, um, and of course the big top line thing from that Reuters interview was Trump saying essentially that he didn't realize the job would be so hard. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there. No, he literally <laughs> said, "I thought it would be easier." That's right. He said, "I thought it would be easier." I thought. I thought being leader of the free world as my first non-family job would be easy. <laughs> okay. Now, obviously, it's not been easy. The I would describe this 100 days as like uh, like watching a moose shit its own dick in slow motion. <laughs> okay. It's been it's been difficult to watch. Jason. It's been like watching an, uh, your body reject an organ that you yes, transplanted into. Yes, that's actually – the moose shitting its own dick is colorful, although not – physically possible. I'm not good at metaphors. Body, body rejecting an organ. That was, is actually what I feel like. And while we're going to wear, be wearing, we're going to be wearing a fucking me bag. Like, yeah. that is Trump. Yeah. And, like. But here's but here's the thing. Here's the thing. How did it get to the point? How did it get to the point where Trump, 100 days into a presidential term, is realizing the job is hard? How did it get to that point? Because Trump has been... Uh, active and exposed to presidential ideas for two years. He's been, he ran in a primary against other people, some of whom had presidential timber, really most of them. Some of them who were serious. Ben, some ben serious Carson people. will leave aside. Right. He's kind of was just doing it for the, for the cash out. He studied for the exam, at least. Like, yeah. there, were, there were people who at least, like, were prepared to cheat sure, on the exam. Sure, And who took had, the, obviously came to it taking it seriously. I, yeah. I, I always tell people, like, Think about a politician that you, you just don't agree with ever. For me, it's like Rick Santorum. Right. Don't agree with Rick Santorum ever. Would would hate for him to become president. But I believe deep down that Rick Santorum understands the job takes a lot of responsibility. I believe he comes to that job with a great deal of graveness about mm-hmm. it. And I believe that Rick Santorum understands that were he to get that job, his mettle would be tested to to an extreme that I, most people can't even imagine. There's right. a reason presidents, they age is seemingly yeah. four years for every year. How did it get to the point where Donald Trump didn't realize this was a hard job? And I think that one of the reasons it got to that point was because campaigning was so easy. It was so easy. And one of the reasons that campaigning is so easy is the way – the media enables the ease of it. The widget making. The widget making. Yeah. It's so 
covering a campaign is so easy because nothing's because everything's at stake, but nothing's at stake. People and talk also, about, it's all pre-formatted too. It's yeah, all yeah. like you have a narrative that you just kind of like you. They take these individual events and like put them into it. I read a really great piece that I'm not going to remember the author of, but at the very beginning of the of, of his primary campaign by somebody who went to his first visit to the border, which was kind of a shit show. I don't even remember. Like I it got canceled that. and rescheduled. Yeah, and yeah, like, okay. yeah. That brings a bell. And he he wound up not going to the actual border, I think, but they had a rally. <laughs> right. And um, he wore the. Oh, he wore a MAGA hat, I think, for the first time in this. This was, but some National Journal reporter, RIP National Journal, um, <laughs> wrote a piece that look. He, 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 I think, admitted he wasn't a t- normally on the trail, and he wrote a piece that was a little meta media about how it was clear to him watching the Trump operation that that was not a fucking campaign, like that it was like this one guy, yeah. and you know, Hope Hicks. And some bluster, mm-hmm. kind of like farting around, yelling at clouds. Right. But that everyone covered it, covered that event the same way they would cover, you know, the Harkin steak fry in Iowa as though it was like a perfectly normal and completely script and scripted in a kind of good way right. like campaign event. And I do think it's true. I think the media gave Trump a campaign-shaped container for right. all of his bullshit. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting, one of the interesting things I found watching the campaign and watching the media. They made it look. Like, they made it look like a campaign from the outside. Like yeah. it was just water. It was just gas. It was just amorphous. Yeah, it would have like flowed into the drain. Yeah, and they if someone d- hadn't put it in a box. And for they it. made constructed the shape for it. Yes, and so Trump would have these daffy ideas on the campaign trail. We're going to ban Muslims from entering the country. Normally, the person saying that is your fringe candidate who doesn't make the news ever. Okay, normally, I like to think normally. Yeah, I mean. I, I do think I do think many of the GOP candidates, if they had to draw the druthers, would ban Muslims, but they'd find a better way to say it, right. a policy that did, did They'd ask Giuliani different. to come up with the legal way to do it right. first. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um, but what was interesting about what happened in that in the moment where, where Donald Trump would have an idea and it would first be received like, oh, blech. Oh, I don't know. This doesn't taste good. But then what would happen is that someone would be like, well, how would this work if it were implemented? Like, how could Donald Trump make this work? I mean, and I think the exercise is still kind of skeptical. It's still kind of like, oh, I wanna I wanna show I wanna show people that like this is a really hard policy to implement because I wanna point out that Donald Trump doesn't understand policy. But here's the thing. They start doing work for him. Yeah. They start showing him how to do things, showing him how to temper rhetoric, showing him how to do things. You train Donald Trump to expect at some point. The, the media is going to want to not count you out, and the media is going to be looking for you to make a pivot. And he is really incapable most of the time of, of, of sustaining any kind of real presidential aura. <laughs> but whenever he's managed to hit it, whenever the lightning in the bottle is flashed, right. most of the press has been like, Fuck yeah, it's finally happening for us. Yeah. You know, he gave a speech. He gets so excited. He gave a speech to Congress. And the it, w- it was amazing because I was not I was listening right. to the speech. And I didn't have to I didn't have to write about it. I didn't have to furnish a take for it. I, w- I didn't have any assignment related to that. So I was just listening to the speech and acquiring information. And after the speech was over, I would have said, 
what was it about? It was like, well, he's going to do this really gross two-minute hate thing yeah. with immigrants. Voice. Voice. And it's going to be powerfully destructive, and I can't believe that anyone in the room would tolerate it. I expect tomorrow uh, it's going to make big news. But it didn't. <laughs> what made big no. news is that he completed his sentences and his shoes were tied. And he and hijacked he, the valor of a fallen soldier. And he hijacked the valor of a fallen soldier. Um, and he was presidential. And, like, Trump didn't even know he could earn that kind of publicity in the moment. Yeah. He, his staff were taken aback by it. They actually delayed the implementation, or the, or not the implementation, because he never got that far. But the, uh, the, the second executive order on the travel ban, uh, because they wanted to bask in the good publicity. Yeah. And I was, and I said, well, didn't you? Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing you're not putting this policy forward today, <laughs> but you did say it was urgent. You did say bad dudes have rushed into the country, absent this policy, and now you're like, you know what? Um. If we're getting some good press, that can wait. That urgent need can wait. And, of course, what, what then happened was, of course, a, a day later, I think it was Sessions recused himself yep. and Trump went to Mar-a-Lago and he started the whole flap about Obama wiretapping. Yes. And, and it, it's funny. Like I want to jump in about the idea that it was um, the reaction of the press when Trump said something outlandish and then the press was like, well, but how would you actually do that? Like – that maybe just speaks to like there is a part of me that's very traditional because <laughs> I'm like I want I thought that that was important because like building a wall you can't do it you know like deporting 11 million aliens like you can't do it like the way the things that he said he was going to do I mean can't like you know the, the logistical yeah. there, there were logistical problems with like 90 percent right. of what he says he wants to do you know and I I kept on feeling like if you could just show the voters that but then like the fantasy is. That that doesn't they don't give a fuck because they're 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 not. No, this is true. the literal versus yeah. versus fig, whatever. Uh, oh, what was it? Thing. Don't take them seriously, but take, not literally. Yeah, thing. whatever it was. It's a little bit like that in that I do think that if I've been able to sit down a Trump voter and be like, but he can't build a wall because you know it's it, you don't really have a wall. It's not it doesn't make sense in certain places. There are certain places where you can't have a wall. It's expensive. Whatever. If I laid out all the different ways that you can't have a unicorn as a pet. Right. They'd be like, eh. I still want a unicorn. I still want a unicorn as a pet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Just didn't matter. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is driven by very real uh, uh, turmoil in people's lives, especially their economic lives. Um, and, and very real racism. Very, yes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, you have you can't you can't ignore the fact that right. it was motivated a lot by racism. But, you know, people, a lot of the people who, who voted for Donald Trump, I feel like I've met some of them in my travels. And I feel like I've met a lot of nice people who I'm oh. almost sure voted for Donald Trump. And the key aspect of their life that I would report back is that they're just isolated. Mm-hmm. No one talks to them. The government doesn't come to them and service their needs. Their only interface with the government is maybe the post office. The media doesn't come to talk to them. Reporters don't come Actually, to talk to them. Actually, I would say that their interface, their other interface with the government is Obamacare. Right. Yes. We're learning and that now. And the opioid epidemic and, and what resources they have um, to face the opioid epidemic, which is why the backlash to Trump care was so real. Yeah. Because I do think some of those Trump voters were like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, we all read the terrible, heartbreaking stories about the Trump voters that were like, oh, he doesn't really mean it. But I think there were some that were like, no, wait. No, we we, we didn't. We 
we didn't take you literally and we are going to be pissed if you actually do take this away. Right. You know, I think if he d- winds up doing if – if, if he winds up um, taking resources away to fight the opioid epidemic, he is going to suffer. Well, if I recall correctly, the opioid epidemic is vastly reduced in areas that are serviced by Obamacare right Yes. Now. Or it would reduce <coughs> – what they have treatment and it, right. they, people have, fewer people are dying. Fewer people are dying. Yeah. You could call the crisis less severe. It is, it is not as fatal. Yeah. Um, and, but he also seems to think the wall is something to do with the opioid epidemic, which, you know, unless they put walls around Walgreens, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's right. not actually going to help that yes. much. Yes. <laughs> right. Or these, or these like uh, – <laughs> These like shopping, these shopping uh, strip pill mills. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not gonna, it's not gonna change anything. The opioids are not coming over. Very few. There was some, the but like that's I mean, yes, not where heroin, the problem. Yeah, heroin is coming over the border. It's, it's not where the problem starts. But oxy, yes. actual legit pharmaceuticals with the morphine molecule. Yeah. They're not being trafficked by drug cartels. Right. Let's go back to the people, the nice people that vote for Trump. I can already, I already can tell you that there are going to be listeners that get upset about our characterization of that of them that way. Um, as nice. As nice. Yes. Um, because and here's the I I, I hear that because yeah. I do think, you know, to go back to, to uh, D, a call back to the very first episode where I talked to the pastor of. Um, from Wisconsin who sort of speaking for his congregation who sound like nice people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pushed him on things like the wall and deportations and like rounding up Muslims. And he his response was kind of, you know, well, they just weren't thinking about that. And I believe that. Mm-hmm. I believe that they weren't going into the voting booth and being like, yeehaw, going to round up me some Muslims, right. you know. Or Jeff Sessions going to sure, you know, put a put a bunch of black people in jail. And right. Woohoo! I mean, some people probably did walk into voting booths thinking those exact thoughts. Sure. But I'm sure that there are a lot of them that didn't think those exact thoughts. But to not be aware of those outcomes does take away from your nice person points. I'm, I'm- I mean that's fair. That's fair. Sometimes we don't learn those things in the in the time it takes to to realize it. Uh, yeah. Keep us from acting. Um, you know, I think that I think if if I was to do sort of a public inventory for here, there's probably some things that are not nice about me too. Um, <laughs> are we going to do a fourth and fifth right now? <laughs> no, no, no. It's um no. Um, uh, I think I think ultimately it would not be a very interesting podcast. <laughs> um, but but I mean I I went so I, on one on one assignment it was at the Democratic National Convention in uh, Charlotte and um, we had to spend um, we, we we booked the trip so that we went to the Tampa Convention and then we went to the Charlotte Convention which means we had like four days to sit around and do nothing in North Carolina and so uh, one of the other one of the other HuffPost reporters and I we drove out to like the Red Belt counties. Um, outside Charlotte, partly to sort of like get just out of the bubble ourselves because we've been hanging out in this super duper insidery world for for four days and we were going to go back into another one and we just needed a, a tonic for that. But also we wanted to just see what people in these counties that voted for McCain uh, thought about, you know, the Democratic convention in town, the politi- politics in general. And uh, one of the first people we met, we pulled into this, uh, a town. I can't remember w- 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 what the name of it was right now. But um, we pulled into this town, and uh, we were both hungry. So we were just like, let's find a restaurant. We'll stop. And so 
we come in and we pull into this sort of uh, main drag, and it's been you you can see right away it's been recently refurbished. Um, there's new places everywhere, uh, but there's not a lot of people. And it's, it's Saturday afternoon. It's it's not the crush of the lunch rush, but it's still not it's not that period in between lunch and dinner where no one's out. We go into this restaurant, and the restaurant is like it, it's like they pulled a, a, a a hip restaurant out of the book and had the exposed brick, the you know the pipe work. It was trendy. It was on trend. Um, it was big too. It was a huge restaurant, but uh, no one was in it. And uh, the only uh, the only person who was in it was this woman, was the waitress, the waitress, and the and the people in the kitchen. And so we talked to the waitress a lot. The waitress was a really wonderful person. Um, single mom. Her daughter was a cheerleader and a competitive cheerleader. Um, she was working the wait shifts uh, so that they would have money to send her out to competitions so she could travel and do all these things. Uh, she spoke about the situation we were in, an empty restaurant, with great sophistication. She talked about how you know the powers that be in the town had decided they wanted them to create a vibrant, creative neighborhood. You know, it was all this Richard Florida bullshit. She talked about this stuff in the same kind of way that Thomas Frank would talk about it, writing for the Baffler. Um, it was, it, you know, she was not unsophisticated. She said what no one realized was that everyone in this town likes to go to this water park on the weekends. and There wasn't really any need for a neighborhood hangout for people to come on the weekends. Um, she was wonderful, wonderful person, very, very friendly, very, very giving, talked to us, answered all our questions. And I'll tell you, I am sure she voted for Donald Trump. I am absolutely dead, dead sure. And I don't and 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 I thought she was a very nice person. I'm sure if I saw her again, she'd still be a very nice person. I'm not saying I guess nice is maybe not the right word, right? Like because there can be nice people who are have um really horrible if we go if by nice we mean pleasant to interact sure, with sure, sure. if you're a white person exactly now i do have to say that if 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 i had been sabrina Siddiqui in that restaurant it may not have gone the same way if i had been wesley lowry in that same restaurant it may not have gone that way yeah but i think that I think that I, I don't like. I still don't like to categorize people into just like irredeemable. Well, no, 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 um, no. Then that's something. If here, here with friends like these, we are against that. You know. Okay. Good. Um, uh, what I, I, it's not that the people are irredeemable at all, at all, at all. It's more um, we need. I believe we need to not shy away from recognizing um, motivations that can be centered around. Uh, racism. I mean, sure. not that a single person, not that they harbor explicit racism in their hearts. I've said before, like, white people hate being called racist. So let's, okay, fine, let's not do it. Um, what I think happened, I mean, I, I think you've heard me use this formulation. What I think would happen with Trump voters is that they have nostalgia for white supremacy. Um, they don't think of it as white supremacy, of course. They think of it as the time when America was great. You know, which I guess was post World War Two. But but when you think about how they're defining that greatness, it's there's a lot of missing achievement, missing right. missing progress in but civil course, rights. What's, you know, what's, what's also missing now? I don't think again these people can be perfectly nice. Right. You know, but if but let's not kid ourselves about. So the ability to the ability to ignore the ramifications of Trump's presidency to people in certain races or sexualities, you know, or identities is a is a privilege, you know. Right. And it is there is something that needs to be addressed there. 
There are, I, I definitely, there, one of the old adages is that is a, to some equality feels like they're being deprived. Yeah, oppression. Um, yeah. yeah, it feels like oppression. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people out there in the country have literally been deprived of economic and political power over the last two or three decades. And a lot of them, I think, I, 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 I think there's a subset of Trump voters who were Obama voters. Yeah. And they voted for Obama twice. And I think the reason they I don't voted, think that means that they're not necessarily nostalgic for white supremacy. Maybe so. But I think they've I think they signed on with Obama specifically because what he seemed to promise was some sort of redistributive project. Yes. yes. Which they would be made whole again. Well, yeah. Now I can't tell for sure if at the end of the Obama administration, these people evaluated him as bad. They liked it, Obama's socialism, actually, yeah, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. They liked Obama's <laughs> – Obama didn't dole out much socialism, but the aspect he provided yes. made, made people think socialism was on the table. They're not calling it socialism, yeah. of course. And, so, and Obama left with pretty high approval ratings. Yeah. I think that some people looked at the choice between Trump and Hillary Clinton and thought, I think this redistributive project is going to continue under Trump. Yeah. Oh, the, no, the the socialism part of national because socialism. Because Trump feels to me like a person who's going to break up a monopoly. And this, in this case, the monopoly was power in Washington. Right, right. No, I mean, they people responded to the socialism part of national right. socialism. They responded to the nationalism part too. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, and they, and they want, you know, socialism for white people, yeah. <laughs> which we already have a ton of. But I kind of want to get back to some more media criticism because I think that this particular ground, you pro- we could probably continue to tread entertaining ourselves for quite a bit. But um, It's very complicated and we're already quite near a rabbit hole on it. Exactly. And we, yeah. I only am going to give us like another like five, ten minutes um, because this is tr- – this is I, I'm having a great time. But, yes. And anyone who's made it this far on the podcast, is, I assume, has as well. So thank you. Now it's going to get even better. Yeah. This last 10 minutes is going to fucking blow the doors off. <laughs> you waited this – we waited this long. Um, which is how this media um, oppositionality is playing in the rest of the country. It's a – I'm not sure how it's playing in the rest of the country. I haven't had the good fortune to be in much of the rest of the country since the election. Um, to, to my mind, I think that – if the media wants to own the reputation of being fierce critics of power, uh, they have to prove that they can sustain it over a, over a period of time. Longer than 100 days, maybe. Longer than 100 days, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been great. I mean, I think that if you were to look – if you look at the first 100 days from my perspective, it's crazy. But those stupid sclerotic institutions – have somehow done their job, and we don't have a lot of bad policy enacted yet. But there also hasn't been a huge disaster, and I wonder what's going to happen. I really wonder what's going to happen when we can't. We no longer have the luxury of talking about Trump in the abstract, where something has exploded, or or uh, there's been an epidemic. Uh, or oil wells has 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 is now gushing oil into the Gulf of Mexico, or any number of things that we could talk about, but are are worse, and I feel I don't want to even right. invoke them. What happens then? I can tell you that when I watched Obama deal with the Ebola epidemic, uh, the media was sh- terrible. The media fanned the flames of any wild-ass crazy idea about Ebola there was. 
It didn't get quite to the part where Ebola is airborne. It didn't mm-hmm. get quite to that part. But I've read a lot about Ebola. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I actually am from the town in Virginia where the hot zone took place. So I've had a vested interest in Ebola because it happened in my hometown. Mm-hmm. The, that outbreak that ended up not being uh, a virus that affected humans, but every Department of Defense freaked out. <clears throat> When the when 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 the outbreak happened, and you have to remember that an outbreak is uh, evidence of a disease in more than one person. It was, I believe, two people, <laughs> so it technically was an outbreak. Right. Uh, I knew that it was very very hard for this disease to transmit. It was likely to be transmitted between the patients and their medical professionals. And that as long as most Americans didn't seek out the Ebola patients and waddle in their shit and vomit, everything was going to be fine. There might be some trace amounts of Ebola somewhere, but it looked pretty containable. The media was freaking out like it was going to be a major, major, major crisis for Barack Obama. And when he— uh, And for him, by the way. Yes. Like, that was the yeah. weird, other weird thing about That's, it. It's like a crisis for Obama. Obama. Right. And it's 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 like, shouldn't you be concerned about the actual people yeah. fighting this? <laughs> yeah. Not just here, but in Africa, too. Yeah. Um, and I thought that Obama was very calm and cool and collected. He had he hired Ron Klain to be the Ebola czar. Um, I think only because I think Ron Klain's only real qualification for that role was that he was gifted at calming the media down. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't really. I, I was just like, I don't know what part of his brief has to do with epidemiology. But you know, I, I watched people from the CDC uh, attempt to explain things, and it was as if we were all expected to be at panic stations. Mm-hmm. And that tendency still exists in us. If something goes wrong or something goes bad, that tendency is there. It's ready to spring out. It's the real epidemic. It's ready to spring out at any time, and I feel like we could lose that oppositionality because I think the only thing that's keeping the oppositionality in place is that there's really no other game to be played? Well, it's it's the crisis, right? That, that what what's happening right now is the media is getting to treat Trump as their crisis. Yeah, the crisis to cover that he is the provider of of the drama yeah. and entertainment and and what usually happens, and what people mostly usually bemoan in Washington media is that we create crises in in sometimes fake, sometimes real, but give more give give confrontation and crisis a lot more attention than it deserves um, in other aspects, yeah. um, like Ebola virus, for instance. Um, but since Trump is like the crisis, they just get to cover that crisis over and over and over. It, what, what's true is that he may not be the next crisis. He may, for whatever reason, because he manages to not trip over his dick like for a week, right. you know, not be as interesting – to television and yeah. and at the same time something else happens in which case i do think that i think that are it's weird because i think that the impulse to be deferential to power didn't work for obama in the in the ebola virus situation but i can just so see it happening with trump if like something bad happens again i don't even want to invoke what it could be um and trump is manages to not shit himself. We always use the vulgar metaphors, but he he somehow calls to mind vulgar metaphors. If he somehow <laughs> manages to not talk about sexual assault, to not, you know, to not do something gross, 
he's going to be treated as yeah. You know, he'll become president for the fourth, fifth, sixth time. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, now you ask me, you ask me what, do, what what do I think the outside world, yeah. outside these bubbles, think about the media's newfound love of of opposing Trump? Yeah. And and you know one of the answers I have is I haven't had the opportunity to actually right. go and find out for myself yet. But Which I appreciate you saying you don't know. That's actually a that's a service. Right. But. So now I'm going to tell you what I what I suspect. Okay. Um, not every reporter in America is on the Trump beat. Okay. Uh, there are other things happening, and I think that what a lot of reporters would tell you if they're not explicitly covering Trump is that the Trump hole is nevertheless devouring their stories or preventing their stories from getting play because there's so much Trump content because it is, in our minds, the crisis. I've talked to reporters who don't cover politics and they're just like, oh, every, you know, it's Trump this, Trump that, Trump that. And I have to feel, my suspicion is what, is, what, are, what are the people outside these sort of, you know, rich media areas think about the opposition to Trump? Maybe they like Trump and they hate the opposition. Maybe they don't like Trump and love the opposition. But I strongly suspect that one of the sentiments they might be feeling right now is that we've forgotten about every other thing that's going on in their lives. Ironically, like, we forgot about them again. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's still stuff These people who elected Trump because they felt forgotten. Right. There's still local governments. There's still corruption. There's still people having problems. In, in, in their lives that we'd normally be covering. Yeah. We'd normally be covering this stuff. I feel I, I feel actually a little bit more alienated, not just because I haven't had the chance to get out and, and talk to people, but because I'm also not receiving from my usual sources those stories about what's happening out there in the hinterlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and so I don't know if you want, you know, I think that America can't survive on Trump opposition alone. There has to be some other part of that meal and that we have to provide them um, because it starts to feel like more a fetish than a mission. Yeah. I want to say two things because I do come from the hinterlands. I come bearing hinterlands info. Um one is that I think at this 100-day point, which we should all remember is just a microscopic span of time, and we want, may someday look back at the hoopla over this and just just feel like idiots. Mm-hmm. At this microspac- in this time frame at the 100 days, I think there are there is a residue of fascination with Trump that is sustaining some interest. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, and that is to judge by the people in my life who are who are not. I have a fair number of them who are not into politics, who are not political writers, but who still who want to talk to me yeah. about politics. Which honestly, like, it's like first season <laughs> of Twin Peaks. It's a little like for me. It's like, can we talk about sports? Yeah. You know, I want to talk about the weather. Hey, that's <laughs> um, but so the number of pe- people in my in my circle who want to talk about politics is still really high. So I do think that there is like he created Trump is so he's such a character. He's he is TV that he they're following they're continuing to he's getting better ratings than ever right like mm-hmm. this is season thirteen of The Apprentice whatever, um, but I also think that they are responding to what the news is doing. They are seeing Trump as the major story and seeing him as a character because we're covering him and he he is a compelling character. Yeah, I think in, on some level, people in the media and journalists 
should take the lead on covering the stories outside of Trump, the Trump hole, and remind people who are living them that, oh, yeah, like, because this is the other part of your life that's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, that not because people are stupid and don't realize that. But if you if the news covers nothing but Trump, like, they'll think that that's the big story. Do you know what one of the big stories that you know? finally broke through the Trump wall? And I was like, oh, that happened. When that bridge collapsed in Atlanta. Oh. And I was like, is that what it's going to take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To penetrate the Trump bubble, you've got to blow up a bridge is going to have to catch on fire. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be have to pre-disasters. And then the other point I was going to make about the Trump about the Trump hole, um, God, that is a gross image, um, is that because he's now president, everything connects to him. You yeah. know, like the, the, the bridge collapsing means that we have to, you know, rely on an infrastructure that he thinks he can make political hay off of. Right. Um, also, like I think about things like, you know, natural disasters that are that may happen and how that's going to – who is the Michael Brown of the Trump administration? Right, like sure. what idiot is going to be running FEMA that we don't even know right now? Yeah. Um, so I do think it's important. So I do think to some extent like that – the amount of attention we give him is justified, but I don't know. He does – now I'll defend the media a little bit. He does court it. I, I think that I think they've never really had an appreciation for the way past presidents managed to not make news as I do now that I have a guy who makes news seemingly on an hourly basis. And I never know what that fucking news is going to be. You know, it could be something crazy is happening. On that note, like we haven't checked our phones since we've been talking, so I'm going to end the podcast because <laughs> we might be at North, we might be at war with North Korea. Well, I can check really quick. Hold on, hold uh-huh. on. Uh, we are not at war with North Korea, <laughs> but I do have a, a source who's a bit uh, excited about something. Okay, well, I will let you get to that. <laughs> We're all still alive, though. We're all That's still good. No mushroom cloud yet. Yes, we're going to have a fine uh, White House Correspondents Dinner weekend. Oh. Uh, thank you for, for being here, Jason. Oh, yeah, anytime. Especially if we're going to do it in this great studio. That's right. Uh, set phasers to stun. Fire the photon torpedoes. That's all. And that's it. Uh, thank you for bearing with us, as usual. And as usual, if you've made it this far, I assume you enjoyed yourself. So I will again encourage you to rate and review the show and also let you know that you can write us. You can tweet at the show at crooked underscore friends. Uh, You can also write to the show via Gmail with friends like pod at Gmail. And you can tweet at me uh, at Anna Marie Cox. And Jason is at Deceiver, which is Deceiver. Um, you know, to skip the E at the beginning, DC Ever. Um, and again, I will say that uh, the response to last week's podcast uh, with John Moe um, was really overwhelming. And I want everyone who wrote uh, to know that I have um, gotten your emails and I've read all of them. I have not been able to respond as much as I would like, but I have gotten them. Uh, We'll probably do another podcast at kind of getting into some of the stuff that people brought up in those emails because there was a lot. And just, you know, thanks. Thanks for listening to this special episode. Thanks for subscribing in general. Um, thanks for being there. Uh, see you in a couple of days.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.